like we have all fantasized about having that rich uncle. You know, the one that leaves us an inheritance and we end up owning his vast fortunes. You know, we do have a rich, not uncle, elder brother, Lord, Savior, and it's riches beyond compare for all eternity, as we'll see today. ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. Welcome to our program today. We're continuing our look at Romans chapter 8, message called Heirs with Christ, part 2. And we are examining what that means to be an heir with Christ and co-heir with Him. What is it that we actually inherit? Let's find out. Here's Pastor Steve with today's broadcast. You can turn over your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We talked a little bit last week about how to get, you know, the path to glory is through suffering. It doesn't matter whether it's the gym or the workout or whatever. You have to put in some time on the suffering angle if you want to reap the results. The first point here, through God's gracious adoption, we have become his children. We saw this in, in verse 15 of chapter 8. We have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit is this seal. It's the pledge of our inheritance as adopted children of God. That's why it's so important to understand when you come to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You have it. He dwells within you. You are baptized into the body of Christ through the Spirit of God. This isn't something that you seek for afterwards. It's not subsequent to salvation. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not a Christian. It's just that simple. And so we have to be reminded of that. In the wonderful book, Knowing God by by, uh, J.I. Packer, he talks about adoption. And he says this, that he talks about it being the highest um, privilege that the gospel offers. Even even higher than the blessing of justification, he says, because it brings us into the richer relationship with God as our loving Father. He says this, the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of it, of adoption is what he's referring to. And he goes on and he illustrates in his book there from the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, as Jesus so wonderfully taught. And he, he shares how adoption is the basis of Christian conduct. As we imitate the Father, it's at the root of glorifying the Father. As people see our good works and glorify the Father is in heaven. It's at the heart of pleasing the Father who sees our hearts rather than being hypocrites who practice our righteousness just before men. See, adoption is the basis of Christian prayer. Since Jesus taught us how to pray, gave us an example, our Father who art in heaven. See, adoption is also the basis of a life of faith. Because we have to learn to trust the Father to provide our needs and not just ourselves. And he kind of elaborates how adoption gives us deep insights into five other matters. He says, it shows us the greatness of God, God's grace and love. It shows us the glory of the Christian hope, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the meaning, of, the meaning, the meaning and motives of what the Puritans called gospel holiness. And the clue we need to see our way through the problem of assurance. 
you got to stop and you ask yourself, does the doctrine of God's gracious adoption of you as his child make your heart well up with thanksgiving and joy as you realize all that the Father's done for you on your behalf? I mean, he handpicked you out of the gutter of sin. He cleaned you up. He clothed you with the perfect righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lovingly brought you into his family as his child, where you enjoy all these unfathomable riches of his grace, both now and forevermore, eternity. I mean, if you meditate on that truth every day, that will give you the strength to resist sin and give you the grace to endure the trials that you're dealing with in your Christian life. But first of all, you have to make sure that you're his child. The Bible is very clear of that. Because by nature, our sin causes us to be what? Children of wrath. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We're not all children of God. That's universalism. The Bible doesn't teach that. How do we become a child of God? Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say you are all sons of God through faith in Grace Bible Church, or the Methodist Church, or the Baptist Church, or the Catholic Church. He doesn't say that. He says it's through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, instead of trusting in yourselves and your good works, and no doubt you have some because we all have some good works, according to the world standard, not God's. Instead of trusting in yourself and your good works to get you into heaven, you put your faith, your trust in Christ and in his work who died to pay the penalty of sin for everyone who believes in him. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to come to God through faith, through Christ. Unless you boast in your faith. (laughs) Some people find themselves boasting in their faith. Keep in mind that faith itself is from the Lord. It's a gift from the Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 5 to 6, he says, In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Christ Jesus to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. If by God's grace through faith in Christ you are a child of God, then you are part of his family. You have been adopted into his family. Secondly, as God's children, we become heirs. We become heirs. And you stop and you think of some of the wealthy families in our country. And you stop and think, boy, I wonder what it would be like to be an heir to their fortune. And then reality hits, and you start to read some of their stories. And from what I've read... Many of those heirs are far from happy people. They have everything money could buy. But they fight. They take each other to court. They're trying to grab, protect their portion of the inheritance. See, isn't it a wonderful thing as children of God, the creator and Lord of the entire universe, we never need to fear that someone else will get our portion? I mean, isn't it a wonderful thing? He, he's going to give us everything he's going to give us. Romans ten twelve says that God is abounding in riches for all who call upon him. He's abounding. It's, it's something that's just overflowing. There's four truths here about our inheritance as God's children. First of all, we are heirs of God himself. We spoke to that. If children, heirs also, heirs of God. At the very least, it means that we will receive all that God has promised to us as his children. 
But it probably also means that God himself is our inheritance. This truth has been taught in the Old Testament. When Israel conquered the land of Canaan, it was divided up into various tribes. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Joshua chapter 13 talks about this. But the priest, the tribe of Levi, got no land. They got nothing. Because who was their inheritance? The Lord. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Do you suppose that any of those Levites looked with envy upon the other tribes when they were out plowing their fertile pastures and grumbled, where's my inheritance? But when they were told, the Lord God of Israel is your inheritance, they complained, bummer, man, I'd rather have some land. I hope not. I mean, can you imagine saying, oh, you know, I want a bigger house instead of God as my inheritance. I mean, that'd be kind of ridiculous. The psalmist knew the joy of having God as his inheritance. In Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, we sang this, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but what? God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The prophet Jeremiah also knew this wonderful truth. He had witnessed the awful destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, along with the slaughter of many of the people and the deportation into slavery by many others. It was far, far worse even than our 9-11 tragedy that happened here in our states. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 24 In the midst of his grief, here's what he says, The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. If God himself is our inheritance, then our salvation is secure because he is eternal, he is unchangeable, and you know what? His promises never fail. His promises never fail. Do you ever order something from TV and you get it? And, you know, while you're ordering it, it says, oh, you know, oh, yeah, you can, you can send it back, you know, send the empty bottle back, no problem. We just need your credit card number. Or, and, you know, you've probably done that. And you get this stuff, whatever it is, and it doesn't work. And you try to find the 800 number, and you go on the website, and, oh, it's, it's, and this stuff keeps coming out of your account, and you're like, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? What? They weren't true to their word. Okay, God is not that kind of a God. He is true. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. His promises never, ever fail. And the reason we have him for our inheritance is because he first chose us and predestined us to adoption as his children. Secondly, we are heirs, we are fellow heirs with Christ, who is the heir of all things. See, it's not like Jesus didn't have anything. You know, if, if I called my, my uh, grandkids up and said, you're going to be my heir, they'd probably look at me and go, so what? <laughs> you know, you don't have anything. What do we want that you got? You know? Um, but see, that's not the case with God, right? I mean, we are co-heirs with Christ. Christ has pretty much everything. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 says this, In these last days, God has spoken. He has spoken to us in his Son indicates he's not still speaking to us. There's not new revelation going on. Be careful with that. And then he says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
It's interesting, that term in the original language, all things, incredible. You've got to do a word study on that. Because it means all things. That's exactly what it means. It means all things. It's all inclusive. It's all comprehensive. Paul puts it this way because he was rebuked by the bickering Corinthians at the time. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21-24, he says, For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So if we're co-heirs with Christ, our inheritance is secure because there is absolutely no doubt that Jesus will inherit all that the Father has given to him. In Psalm 2, it says, The nations rage against God and seek to throw off the lordship of his anointed king, but God who sits in the heavens scoffs at these proud earthly kings. He says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 to 8, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. See, it is certain that Jesus will inherit all that the Father has promised to him. And since we are fellow heirs, we are co-heirs with Christ, our inheritance is just as secure. Our right to the riches of heaven is not because there's anything good in us, but because we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we have that inheritance. But what does our inheritance look like? Our inheritance includes the unfathomable riches of Christ, thirdly. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul describes his ministry as to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. I mean, when you stop and think about that, that's a whole message in and of itself. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul says, So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take ages and ages and ages and ages in eternity to reveal to us all that God has prepared for us and has given to us in Christ Jesus. And these riches include our being heirs of the world. Romans chapter 4 verse 13 Paul said for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants literally the seed of Abraham said that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. God did not or Abraham did not inherit obviously the world in his lifetime. The only piece of real estate he owned was a burial grave, a cave. But God has promised a new city whose architect and builder, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11, is God. Abraham was looking for a heavenly city. And since we are fellow heirs with Christ, I want you to understand, he is the seed of Abraham. We will inherit the new heavens and earth with him. We're also heirs of the kingdom of God. James chapter 2, verse 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. See, all these are future blessings that we will have. And included with these promises, we are heirs, finally, of eternal life. Eternal life, which is really the joy of knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Titus chapter 3, Paul says this in verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind...
appeared, it says he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, declared righteous by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, write that text down, Titus 3, 4 to 7, and go home and read it, and read it, and read it, and read it. I mean, it's amazing what we have in Christ. Well, the fact that we are heirs of God, we're also fellow heirs with Christ, makes our, absolutely, our salvation absolutely certain. In Galatians uh, 3.29, Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant according to the promise. And who made the promise? God who cannot lie. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16, or 17 to 18, we read this. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The two unchangeable things were God's word of promise and his oath, which he swore by himself to Abraham. Hebrews 6.14, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. See, God wants us to know that our inheritance, for one thing, it's imperishable. It's undefiled, as 1 Peter 1.4 says. It will not fade away. It's reserved for us in heaven. Have you ever gone out to dinner to a fancy restaurant? What do you have to do? Make a reservation. You know, generally you don't just show up. Hey, yeah, a table or two. You know, I look at you like, who are you? You know, do you have a reservation, sir? No. You have to make a reservation. Well, it tells us there that our reservation in heaven is already made, and it's made by God. It's absolutely certain. And you say, well, then why does He allow us to suffer? And with this, we'll close the third point here is if we have these promises and assurance from his spirit, then we can endure present sufferings as the path toward future glory with Christ. Paul adds in in chapter eight, verse 17 there at the end, he says, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Why does Paul throw that in there? Why does he just slip it in there real quick? Well, I think Paul was a realistic pastor and he wanted his people to apply these glorious truths about the future inheritance to the present reality in their lives as they lived in a fallen and hurting and sinful world. I mean, when you think of Paul himself, he, he suffered terribly in his life. Read 2 Corinthians 11. tells us there. And he knew many of his readers were suffering. Some were being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. Some had lost loved ones to martyrdom. But you know what? The bottom line is all of God's children go through trials from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. That's what we do. We go through trials with our family. We go through trials with other people. We go through trials at work. We go through trials at play. We go through trials because of our sins and our sins of others against us. We go through trials of health problems and disappointments and heartaches and grief. That's part of life. That's just what's before us. But why does God allow us to suffer? Why doesn't he kind of insulate us somehow. If Jesus, God's beloved son, in whom he was well pleased, had to suffer before entering glory, 
then why wouldn't you expect, why would you expect us to be exempt? See, the popular teaching that it's God's will for his children to be healthy and wealthy and wise and all that, that's not found in the Bible anyway, anywhere. It's nonsense. Have you ever noticed that none of these false teachers proclaiming this nonsense are over uh, 100 years of age <clears throat> still going strong? Why? Because they get sick and they die. They're deceiving people. And they're doing it for the sake of sordid gain. They're filling their pockets. Also, if you think about this, if Jesus himself, who was sinless, learned obedience through the things that he suffered, that's what Hebrews 5.8 tells us, then why in the world would we think that it, we wouldn't have to do something like that? It's not going to be an easier course for us. God disciplines all of his children so that we might share in his holiness, preparing us one day for that glory that awaits us. Someone put it this way, where there are no cares, there will generally be no prayers. God has really blessed us. And the reason that he allows these trials, these sufferings in our life is to drive us to trust him more and more each and every day. To purify the dross from our own lives, to keep and produce perseverance, proven character, hope in our lives. They keep us from loving this world, which frankly can be very easily loved at times. And they help us to be focused not on our present day reality, but on eternity. Paul says here that we will be glorified with Christ. Our adoption is a present day reality, but there's still a future fulfillment of it when we receive our new resurrected bodies. We'll get into that in a couple weeks. And we'll be in the presence of the Lord forever. J.C. Ryle, and we're close with this reading. He asks a series of questions. And then expounds on the the perfections of heaven. He says, is knowledge pleasant to us now? In heaven we shall know all things, and there will be no disagreements among believers. Is holiness pleasant to us now? Is sin causing us trouble now? In heaven there will be no sin. Is rest pleasant to us now? Are we often weary and faint? In heaven we will enjoy God's perfect rest. Is service pleasant for us now we will serve God perfectly in heaven without any of our present limitations is satisfaction pleasant to us now in heaven our joy will be perfect and permanent is communion with the saints pleasant now don't answer in heaven we will enjoy perfect fellowship with God's people is communion with Christ pleasant for us now in heaven We will see his face and our fellowship will never, ever be broken by our sin. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have made us heirs with Christ, that you've adopted us into your own family, that we have brothers and sisters in Christ to care for us and to pray for us and to encourage us and edify us and build us up in the faith as we do to them. Father, we we long, we yearn to be in your presence one day. We await for you to reach down on that day, that hour. You already know when it will take place. Father, I pray that we would look forward to it, that we would embrace it, that we would realize this world is not our home. We're just passing through, and there's so much glory that awaits for us on the other side if we truly know Christ. And I pray for any here this morning who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Maybe they're trusting in themselves. Maybe they're trusting in a church. Maybe they're trusting in their own works, their own goodness, all those things will fail in the end. 
Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never, ever knew you. The only answer to give is that I know Christ, that I've lived for Christ, I've trusted in Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. That will save your heart. You cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me, even in my unbelief, Lord, show me the way of your salvation. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' prayer. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal his grace to your hearts through the teaching of his word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible-teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade 5. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.